0: Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and guide and lead us as we look at the scriptures and show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 26. This is still Paul's defense. (laughs) All right. Uh, Paul was arrested by the centurion, handed over to Felix. Felix put him in, in, uh, uh, imprisoned him for two years. Felix is transferred. Now we have Festus coming in. Festus doesn't know what to do with him. Uh, Paul makes his appeal to go to to uh, Caesar, and we had Agrippa and Bernice coming to visit Festus on a royal visit, and we ended the last chapter with them saying uh, he wants to go to Caesar, but I don't even know what charges to write down on the on the bill on the bill of charges, you know. And I feel, I feel, basically, in poetic language, uh, uh, political language, I feel stupid not being able to write charges, and I'm going to send them to Caesar. All right, so here we are, ready for chapter 26 of the book of Acts. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before you, touching all the things where I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know you to be an expert on all customs and questions which were among the Jews. Therefore, I beseech you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews." which knew me from the beginning if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged of the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blasphemy. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities." And we'll stop there. (laughs) All right. Agrippa is the king. Festus is a governor. And Festus basically told Agrippa, you know, I I need somebody to help me figure out what the charges are that we're going to send to Caesar for this guy. Um, And Agrippa very generously says, you are permitted to speak for yourself. This isn't a question. This is a statement. He's standing before a king. And when you stand before a king without permission, you were not to talk. All right. You had to wait to be given permission to speak because the king was so much higher than you. And it's theoretically the way you're supposed to be if you go in front of anybody with any great authority. You don't just start speaking to them. We don't enforce it as much in America as most countries do. But... Even if you were to go stand in front of the president or anything, you're not supposed to just get up and say, talk to the president without permission, or being granted that permission to speak. Uh, and every once in a while, you see this in the press conferences, where somebody will try to press a question, and the president is not willing to answer that question, and he's moving on, and the person saying, uh, you haven't answered my question, you haven't answered my question, Then they'll, they'll be ignored. Okay, here Agrippa gives him permission to speak. And Paul, You know, stretches forth his hand and answers for himself. The stretching forth of his hand was to get attention. I'm speaking. I'm the one speaking. And we don't know how crowded it was, but obviously it was crowded enough for him to... Okay, just his hand up. up, All right, I'm the one speaking. All right. Um, And it says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before you, touching all the things wherever... Whereof I am accused of the Jews. So he says I am blessed. I am happy to be for you to be before you King Agrippa Why? Though even though he wasn't an active following Jew. He was born a Jew and had spent most of his life in Rome enough to become In a political office, so he wasn't really Jewish, but he knew Jewish customs, so Paul's going to be appealing to him as a Jew All right, so he goes I'm here I'm ready to answer for all the things touching upon which I am accused. Everything that they're going to accuse me, I am ready to answer to you, King Agrippa. And then he says, especially because I know you are an expert in all customs and questions which, you are, which are among the Jews. Therefore, I beseech you to listen to me patiently. All right, so he's going, you, are, you know these things. Now, I'm not sure that King Agrippa was an expert, but he 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 definitely knew more than Felix and uh, and Festus had known. He knew more than the centurion had known, because this man at least had grown up in a Jewish home. And when Paul says, "You you are an expert in the customs, these are the traditions that they did. Not necessarily the things that were in the Bible or the Old Testament, but just traditions. And this is a big point for Paul. You know, it's one thing to know what is said in the book. This is what I learn. I learn what's in the book. So when I talk to a Jewish person who has lived this, I find out how they practice beyond what's in the book. All right. And Paul's saying, you know what it's like. You know all the traditions. And this is very interesting. And the questions uh, which are among the Jews. Now, this might kind of make you wonder, Well, what is he talking about, the question? These are the things that they debate. He's going to say, you understand the difference between the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. All right? Uh, And remember, the Pharisees believe in the supernatural. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the Messiah. They believe in in angels and, and all of this stuff. The Sadducees are just practical people. What I see is what there is. They don't believe in the supernatural, they don't believe in angels, they barely believe that there's a God, but they really don't even believe that. They can't see him, so they're not even sure that that's true. All right? They don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in a coming messiah, they're very pragmatic, uh, but they're spiritual leaders, <laughs> Okay. even though they don't believe in the spiritual world. So Paul is going, you understand these things, you understand the questions that we have. And it's kind of like for us as a Christian, if we Baptists go into a group of Charismatics, there are questions that could come up if we were to talk to one another, and listen to it. You know, how does the Holy Spirit work? What you know, what's the power of prayer? You know, there's different questions that we would have amongst ourselves. And sometimes when you're listening to the radio, you will hear those teachings that are basically questionable, as far as I'm concerned, because I don't think they agree with the Bible. And This is what Paul is saying. You understand these type of questions. I'm not going to have to explain myself to you. You understand these things. So he says, I'm looking forward to making my defense to you. And so this is where he's at. And he goes, and please listen to me patiently. Uh, He's already laying out the fact that he's going to talk for a while. He's going to talk about things that he might not even want to hear as he's going through his discussion. Have you ever listened to somebody and you're going, I'm tired of listening to this person because I don't agree with anything they say. I, I don't agree, not, not just you're tired of listening to but I don't agree with what they're saying, so I just don't want to listen, listen anymore. So he's warning Agrippa, a I'm going to be saying things you may not agree with, please hear me out. All right? Like, let me talk. And then he goes, then he starts into his testimony. My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. Okay, now this is kind of an interesting statement because remember, he was, before he was saved, he was on the fast track to be one of the top dogs in the Sanhedrin. Okay, he was accomplishing things, and he said over and over, he was accomplishing things. He was, he was the rising star in, in the Jewish religion. He was young. He was already in the Sanhedrin, which means he was at least 30 years old when he got saved. And he's on his way up. He's recognized. He has power. He has authority. And he goes, my own nation knows who I, who I used to be. All right? If they will just testify, he says you know, in verse 5, if they would just testify that after the strictest sect of our religion I lived, a Pharisee. All right? And here, again, he's not having to explain to Agrippa what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee, you know, we kind of as Christians look at Pharisees and we look down our nose at Pharisees because of the hypocrisy that we, we keep reading about in the Old Testament. It's not the way the Jews saw them. The Jews saw them as the most perfect people. They walked as close to the ways that they were supposed to walk. And some of them were good. Okay, You had people like uh, Nicodemus who really sought after Jesus and wanted to know the scriptures from G- that Jesus taught. And we know that he converted over because he's one of the two uh, that went and got the body of Christ when he died and put it in a tomb. So we know that he converted. Now, there's no mention of him following him on a day-to-day basis and uh, abandoning the, the, the Sanhedrin and all that. But he followed him and he was a Pharisee. So not every Pharisee was a bad, hypocritical person, right? Many of them were, but not all of them. So when we think of them, we, we think about all the bad guys, you know, that they were just a bunch of hypocrites and did all these things and they really weren't. For the most part, they were good followers of God trying to do the best they can, totally misunderstanding. They thought their works were what was important and they were going to live as perfect a life as they could. And, and they would go make their sacrifice on Yom Kippur and practice on Passover and do all the different uh, t- sacrifices they were required to make and tried to please God, Some, of, a good, per- good percentage of them. And Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee. I was in that strictest group. We were very careful to follow all the laws. And Pharisees were always chosen the best of the best. All right? Uh, so they would go out and they'd go, okay, yeah, you seem to be going good. You can be one of us. All right? That's the group that Paul was got, and he was picked. He was picked by Gamaliel to be taught, and Gamaliel was the best teacher of his day. He was the number three teacher of all time in Judaism, and he lived in, in Paul's day, and he picked Paul to be one of his students. In you know, that day, you didn't, you didn't go and say, well, I want to go to this college. You got picked by the teacher. Now usually you might make an application you know but you know they would go to the synagogues they would they would get recommendations from the rabbis and say I have a really good student you really should talk to this student and Paul is one of those that gets picked by Gamaliel and he says this is who I was I was on the top verse 6 says and I and now I stand and am judged for the hope and promise made of God unto our fathers So he says God made a promise what was that promise basically if you want to boil it down the Messiah is going to come and there's going to bring a uh, Bring uh, life life to us Unto which promise are twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come and for that hope's sake King Agrippa I am accused of the Jews now this word for instantly is earnestly <laughs> All right, and not instantly uh, until the twelve tribes earnestly serve God day and night, now i 'm not sure which group of people he's looking at when he says that they're earnestly serving God. <laughs> uh, that has not been the history of the Jewish people overall. Uh, overall, they've rejected God and followed you know disobeyed God. They went to Egypt being saved by Joseph, a picture of Jesus. they fall into idolatry worship in Egypt and forget about God for the most part not all of them but a lot of them they come out of Egypt and they're full of idolatry that God has to work out of them he gets them to the promised land and they refuse to go in because there's giants in the land and we might, and we can't kill these giants <laughs> and God says fine you think you know and they go we're, and our children will will be killed by these giants and God says fine you get to wander in the desert till all of you are dead and your children will get to go in and take the land and because you said that they would be killed, so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, rebelling against God. All right. And if you remember, when they were first told, God says you can't go in, what was the first thing they did? They decided that they were going to go attack the Promised Land, and lost about 30,000 of them in one battle, <laughs> because they did what God said not to do. Now, and all through their wandering, you know, the time in the Promised Land, they did not fully conquer the land, they did not... They, they, under the period of the judges, they kept falling into idolatry. And that's their history all through their existence. And Paul says they earnestly wait. But there was this earnest expectation. And Messiah is coming. All through this, no matter how far off they had this idea, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah, but what they understood the Messiah to be, is what he will be at the, in the millennial kingdom. He will be the God of this, the king of this world. Jesus is going to come at that point. He's going to rule in Jerusalem over the whole world. And that's what they were waiting for. This is what the disciples expected Jesus to do. All right. They were following him and every moment they were wondering, when is he going to get the army put together? When is he going to get rid of these Roman soldiers? All right. He's the Messiah. We know he's the Messiah, but we're not seeing any army. We're not seeing any words of of rebellion we're not seeing any words to revolt against these guys what is going on and every time he talked about dying for them it went in one ear out the other because it did not compute the messiah is going here to set up a kingdom we're on the ground floor of the messiah that means you know we're going to be his right hand men you know we're going to be the dukes and the princes he's going to put us over all the territories and this is what they're expecting and this is what Paul said. This is what the Jewish people have been expecting. Agrippa knows this. Rome knows this. Rome knows that they're thinking about a Messiah all the time. Because that's what they talk about. You know, and they just know for one thing that it's been the Messiah has been a long time waiting. And basically they say the same thing people say today. You know, when we tell people Jesus is coming back. Oh yeah, you guys have been saying that for 2,000 years. Yeah, he's still coming back. When the when the Jewish people were talking in the Roman days, they're going, "Yeah, that's what you guys have been saying for two thousand years. You've got a Messiah coming. Yeah, you know, well, you guys better just quit believing it." And then when their Messiah comes, they ignore him. And this is what Paul says: I'm being accused of having the hope that has been expect, expected by all of the Jews. And then it says in verse eight, "Why should it be thought?" A thing incredible to you that God should raise the dead. In other words, if God is able to create everything and you believe that He created everything because He's talking to Agrippa, why will it be amazing that He could raise the dead? And this is kind of an interesting thing for us as Christians in our day and age. I am the person that believes the Bible. I believe that God can heal people. I believe that He can raise the dead. I believe that He can do miracles even today. And I don't know if you all realize how strange that statement is in many churches today. There are many, especially Baptist churches, that believe that all the miracles s- cease to happen after the first century. That God no longer does miracles. <laughs> he does miracle. all right? And I don't know where they come up with that. It's not biblical. It doesn't match my experience. <laughs> and yet, there are many Of them even in our association there's many pastors that do not believe that God still does miracles now I don't know what Bible they're reading I don't know what Bible what God they're believing in my Bible says God doesn't is the same yesterday today and forever my God does not change so I do not know why they believe because they should have the same Bible they shouldn't have taken those verses out of the Bible and they should believe that God does miracles but they don't this is the world we're living in our Christian world is very splintered we have a large percentage of people that don't believe the Bible at all we have a whole bunch of them that are picking and choosing what they want to believe out of the Bible and when they read a verse like God doesn't change their theology says well he hasn't changed but he doesn't do miracles anymore and it's like okay how do we put those two things together this is something I say to us all the time we need to be careful that we never let something that we believe control how we read the Bible we need to always make sure that the Bible is primary If the Bible says something that doesn't agree with something that I believe I need to look and say did I read it right did I understand it right if I understood it right, then I have to change what I believe or at least talk to somebody and help them, have somebody else help me understand why. Because it's so important. The Bible must be true. And you know God is to be true and every man a liar. So if I'm being taught one thing and the Bible teaches me something else, they're lying. Now, are they lying on purpose? Not necessarily. They don't understand. They don't. They're, they're being led astray. Uh, it would be worse if they're trying to do it on purpose, but, but I've talked to many of these guys and they truly believe what they say. And they can't really defend it because I'll ask them things like, what, well, what are you doing with God's the same yesterday, today and forever? Well, you know, and they'll give me you know, some excuse. I'm going, well that doesn't make any sense. What do you do with God never changes? Well, yeah, yeah you know, it's just very funny to talk to people. We need to be able to understand that God does not change. This is why it's beautiful to look in the Old Testament when you know Jesus Christ and see Jesus on just about every page of the Old Testament. And say, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's God's grace, here's his mercy. Yeah, here's a little bit of his judgment, but right behind it is mercy. You know, and this is Jesus all over the place. And so Paul is saying, you know, I, I find it incredible that, that they would think that God can't raise the dead. Because what was the biggest problem that they had? He preached, Jesus resurrected. And so they're saying, well, God doesn't resurrect people. Well, even in the Old Testament, there was resurrections. Elijah raised the young man from the dead. Elijah raised a young man from the dead. There's other people that prayed and people were brought back to life. And Paul's saying, it's all through the scriptures. Our God doesn't change. Why is, it, why is it amazing that this man that, I, that said he was going to die for our sins rose from the dead just as he said? And so this is very important for us to understand. He's saying, I'm, I'm believing what the word says. And I've talked to this, this one he's going to come out and say. And it says, verse 9, Verily thought my, uh, my, with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now he's back to before he got saved. He goes, originally, I was in opposition to this Jesus. All right. Uh, I did things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he starts talking about it, which in verse 10, which thing also I did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. So he says, I had them arrested. And when they were executed, it doesn't say that he executed anybody. Right? But he says, I added my voice, or literally it says my vote. Right? So he, he was part of the Sanhedrin, so he, had his, he was having the vote for guilt. He says, I put my vote in. Kill them. They deserve death. So in essence, he has killed them. He just hasn't been the physical one to kill them, he has said, hey, "I'm all for it. Kill them." You know, we see him standing at the pit, watching over the garments as everybody's throwing the rocks at Stephen. All right, and he had the authority and power to stop it. He was he was a Pharisee. He was in the Sanhedrin. He could have stopped what was going on. He said, "Nope, this is my vote. He deserves death." And this is what he's telling Agrippa. He goes, "Hey, <laughs> these guys all know I was a, I was the rising star." I was a Pharisee, I persecuted these people, I put them in prison, I approved of their executions. And if that wasn't enough, he goes in verse 11, I punished them oft in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blasphemy, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even into strange cities. This is very interesting. He says, I compelled them to blasphemy. This is one thing that Rome did all the time as well. They would bring the Christians in and give them one last opportunity to recant. Paul would bring them in and say, you know, Paul's a brilliant orator. We've seen this over and over. He's doing his own defenses and winning. He would come to these people. He'd lay out the scriptures and show them how they were wrong. And and most of them weren't smart enough to argue with Paul. And at some point, you know, they would be able to say, yes, I understand, you know, and blaspheme the name of Christ and basically reject him in front of Paul during that argument. All through the first century or so, Rome would bring the Christians to the altar of the, of the Caesar. And all they had to do to avoid death was drop a few grains of, of, uh, of, of barley or wheat or whatever, onto the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if they saw, said that, they were free to go. And they committed the blasphemy. Now, would God forgive them? Yes, God would forgive them their weakness. I'm not sure the church would always forgive them of their weakness. Uh, but they also understood you're facing death. This is something, and this is why I'm encouraging us so much. We need to make our decision now on what we're going to do when we're facing this kind of situation. Am I going to blasphemy God in his word or stand for him, even though it means whatever it's going to mean at first? At first it's going to mean prison. And first it's just going to mean prison, which is bad. Most of us don't want to go to prison. You know, I've seen the prison. I don't really want to be wearing the orange in the prison. Okay. Uh, yeah. But at the same... <laughs> yeah, that's the other side. I'm not going to change who I am. I'm still going to be a pastor. I'll just change. I'll just change the audience that I'm preaching to. All right. Um, but this is what he's saying. He compelled them to reject Christ. And again, mo- and I don't think he was physically beating them. And that may have been part of what he was doing. But I think he was so good at arguing that he would go through the scriptures and say. You know, look, this guy died, the Messiah you know, go through all of what the Messiah is supposed to do. How can you believe that he's the Messiah when he died? The Messiah is supposed to be setting up the kingdom, he's supposed to get rid of Rome and he's a failed Messiah. How are you believing in him? You would give him the story that was being proposed by the Sanhedrin that the disciples stole the body and and hid the body. You know, you haven't seen him, so why are you believing these guys that are saying this? You know, they're they're fools. They're they are fools they they do not know what they're talking about. He'd be given this long, long argument, the same arguments that we still hear today. Okay, and he'd be given them he'd compel them to reject Christ. And if not, he sent them to be sent them to their death, or sent them to, to prison to be ex, executed by in his vote. So this is all he's going. He's he's giving, he's giving uh, Agrippa his story. His story. I was, I was on top of this. You know, you, I'm, in, I'm on trial for this this sect that I'm a, a leader for, but I started out against them. And now he gives his testimony of his salvation. Verse 12. Therefore, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O King, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining around about me. And them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecute you me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he answered, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of these things which you have seen And those things in which I will appear unto you, deliver you the people from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I send you. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness for sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them in Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works met for repentance. So here is Paul's testimony. He just summed up about 30 years of life in, in uh, just a couple sentences. All right. Uh, so he says, hey, I was headed to Damascus. <laughs> And he said, I had authority, and I had a commission, power, permission. All right? He had papers that says, I can arrest any followers of the way in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem. And you're going, well, how can he have the power to, create, to arrest Christians? Well, remember, what have we said all along? Christians at that point in time were part of the Jewish religion. They were a sect of the Jewish faith. They were the followers of the way. They were not broken apart. They had the protections of Judaism. So Paul is coming from the high priest and the Sanhedrin with permission to arrest these uh, Jews that weren't following Jewish practices. And basically saying, we're going to cleanse up this Judaism real quick. We're going to get rid of these uh, infidels, <laughs> okay? They don't, they're, not, they're not believing the way we believe, so I'm coming to Damascus to arrest them. And he had the power and authority from the heads of the Jude- Jewish beliefs to go, re- go arrest these people that were claiming to be Jews, but weren't following what they wanted them to follow. So he's headed to Damascus, and he says, as we've heard this story so many times, as I was riding along, a light shone around me. It was middle of the day at the brightest point, and the light that shone around me was brighter than the sun. And I cannot imagine how bright that was, because we think of the sun being bright. And Paul is saying, when God's glory shone upon me, it was brighter than the sun. And it says, and this is the first place we read that we were all fallen down to the earth. Not just him, they all saw the light. Now we've also been heard that, told that they all did not hear the voice. They saw the light, they saw the brightness, they, they did not hear the words. And Paul said, you know, he was asked, Saul, Saul, why persecute you me? Now Paul knew what was brighter than the sun. He understood because he would have understood as a Jewish S- a scholar, that God has the Shekinah glory of God is brighter than anything. He knew what he was standing in front in midday when the sun was, sh- was eclipsed by the bright light of God. And God, whom he thinks he's following, says you're persecuting me. Mm-hmm. No, no. Now Think about this for a moment. Paul is a Pharisee he's obeying God's laws to the best of his ability has never done anything against the scripture as far as he knows and God in the brightness of God is shining forth in front of him saying you're persecuting me and then he goes who are you I think he was afraid he knew the answer he was hoping for another answer He was hoping for an answer like when Job stood before God and and Job says I'm shutting my mouth. I have nothing to say because now I know that I'm a sinner. You know, maybe he was hoping that it was going to be God saying, you know, you're not as righteous as you think you are. But at the same time, I think he was afraid because who has he been persecuting? Christians and Gamaliel had stood up earlier on and said, we should not oppose these people because other groups, other messiahs have come and gone. And if it's of God, we can't stop it. And if it's not of God, it's going to fall apart. So Paul heard his teachers say that to the Sanhedrin. And yet he's pressing against the the Christians. And I think he has this very sneaky feeling. (laughs) Uh, This better not be this Jesus who I'm persecuting. Because he knows he's standing before God. Because the the sun has been eclipsed. And of course, that's exactly the answer. I am Jesus whom you persecute. His worst fear is acknowledged. I'm now fighting against God. And he says, But rise up, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of these things which you have seen, and these things which you... I will appear unto you get up I've got a job for you to do you are now switching sides <laughs> all right God's grace he's going to go from the enemy of the church to a fighter for the church and if you remember it doesn't go into in his testimony but if you remember when Paul first says to the Damascus leaders I've changed they don't believe him they think it's a trick He's just trying to trick us so he can get all of our leaders all in one place and have us all arrested. And when he goes to Jerusalem, they think the same thing. It takes Barnabas coming down and saying he has really changed. If you had just known what was going on in Damascus and how he has been preaching Christ and and getting people saved and finally uh, Peter comes to him, gets convinced that he really is saved and brings him to see the rest of the disciples. He doesn't go into all of this. you know. He doesn't go into all of that part. But God has said, he says, God gave me a mission to go preach. And it says, delivering you from, from the people and from the Gentiles and to whom I send you. So God says, I'm going to keep you protected. I'm going to deliver you from each of these groups. This is really a good thing. This is something we all need to understand. As long as we're doing what God wants us to do, and he has a plan for us, we are indestructible. Doesn't mean we won't get hurt, but we won't die if we're doing what God tells us to do. Paul was hurt many times. He got beat. He says, three times I've taken beatings from the Jews, 39 stripes. Yeah, but they all die. Well, eventually everybody dies, yes. (laughs) But until God's done, remember that's what I said, until God's done with us, once we once he says it's time to go home, and we don't know when that period is. (laughs) But until that point, nothing, can, nothing will kill us. Now we may take the 39 stripes like Paul did. We may find ourselves floating in the ocean, or the sea, in, the, in a shipwreck. Um, Paul was stoned one time, and we believe that he died and was resurrected from that, so he was still not—he you know, uh, was not killed in one sense. Uh, but God says, "I am going to deliver you from them." And your job is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith in me, which is in me. So he goes, Your job, Paul, turn them from darkness, turn them from the power of Satan to forgiveness. That is really our job as Christians. Help people see light. Turn from the power of Satan and come into forgiveness. And all we can do is is teach. All we can do is share. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convert them. Our job is just to turn them. Just as Paul said, he says your job is to turn them. Turn them to see the light. One of the ways we turn them to see the light is to give our testimony. This is what God has done for me. And we live a life that is a example of Christ so that when people look at us they see something different and this is very important people need to see that we are somebody different from the world now when we first get saved it's real easy because lots of people know us and we we get turned and we get changed and people go you're no fun anymore you're you're you know you don't do the same things you don't go to the parties you don't you don't participate in all this stuff A little harder when we get away from that group because they abandon us. You know, we will be accused of abandoning them. But it gets to the point where they just don't want to be around you anymore. Because you bring God into their situation and they don't want to be around you. And then we need to live a life that's different enough that people go, there's something about you. This is the question I get often. You know, why are you happy all the time? Well, I don't think I'm happy all the time, but I guess I'm happy most of the time if people notice it. All right. Why don't you get mad at this person? Why aren't you talking bad about this person? And people notice that we are different from the world when we follow Christ. And that is our calling. Turn them to the light and let them look and see God. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, which are the sanctified by God. Faith that is in me. Sanctified, made perfect. Once we get saved, God declares us perfect in our in from the courts of heaven. We spend our entire life being made perfect. And we will never get there. But we should be getting more perfect with each passing day, year, whatever period. I like to tell people look back over a year, because we don't really notice how God is changing us over days, just like when we see kids. The kids growing up in front of us, we don't realize how big they're getting. Uh, but you see your nieces and nephews that you haven't seen for, for months or a year, and all of a sudden, weren't you, uh, weren't you just about two feet tall, and now you're five feet tall? <laughs> you know, we notice how fast they change over a period of time. So this is why I challenge us as Christians Look at what you're doing. Would you have done the same thing that you're doing now a year ago? If the answer is yes, then we better look at your life and say, why aren't you changing? Why aren't you growing? The answer should be, no, I, I would never do the things that I do, used to do today. And we're not gonna get perfect overnight, but there should be things that we look at and say, wow, yes, you know, I, I, they, they really harassed me and I didn't take their head off ye- yesterday. <laughs> You know, a year ago, I would have took their head off and put it on a pole. <laughs> you know, and for some people, that might be literal. <laughs> you know, and God says, no, you're, we're, we're changing you. you know, I didn't even get mad at them when they did this. You know, and this is where we're going to see him lifted up. And then he goes, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. All right. He says, I obeyed. Now, this is kind of something interesting, you know, and it's, you know, if any of us saw Jesus and Jesus gave us a command, we'd probably be very likely to obey, all right? Paul was zealous for God. He wanted to serve God. He literally, before this event, thought he was serving God to cleanse out these crazy people that believe the Messiah has come. This guy that was killed and now they're saying was alive, and they're upsetting rome and judaism with their teaching and he says i'm going to go clean out i'm going to clean them out there because they are rebellious against god and god changes his heart and says now i want you to be just as zealous for the truth there are lots of people that are zealous for lies being zealous does not mean that you are following god and this is something that's very understandable. There are lots of people that are very zealous following after lies. Whether even in, within the Christian circle following lies or Judea, Judea, Judaism following lies. Not just other religions. You can be very zealous for the wrong things. Paul was. And God says, now I'm going I'm to teach you. I'm going to correct your thinking. And now he says, and Paul goes, and I obeyed. And that was Paul's character. He was a Type A driven personality that says, "I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do it everything at about 500 percent." And when he became a Christian and follower of Christ, he became 500 percent into, you know, following God. Every opportunity he spoke, every, and, and was very bold. <laughs> he was just as bold for Christ as he had been against Christ. And and it's rising up of the, in, within the ranks of Judaism. And he says, verse 20, But I showed first them in Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works met for repentance. So here he's going, he goes, first I started in Damascus, and he again, he's covering this real fast. He spent years in Damascus. He goes, then I went to Jerusalem, then I went all through Judea, and then I went to see the Gentiles. All right? Paul was following Jesus' command go into all the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. This is what Paul's doing. His plan was to go everywhere. He was following the command of God, and he says that they should repent and turn to God. This is one of the greatest steps in salvation that people forget. People will pray to God and say, God, I'm a sinner, I, you know, I, I, I believe I do. But they'll forget the repentance part. Repentance is to turn away from what we're doing and turn to God. That is what repentance is. Turn away from our sin to God. And that will allow us then to do works that are as Paul said met for repentance. He goes, once you've repented, you're going to start doing good deeds. This is what James tells us. He says, you know, faith without works is dead. He also says, show me your faith without your without works. He goes, and I will show you my faith by my works. He did not say that you could not be saved without works. What was he saying? You definitely can't show him that you're saved. How can you show somebody that you're saved if you're not doing works that follow God? And, and he says, well, you wanna, you, you, wanna try to, you wanna try to prove to me that you're saved, that's good. Show, tell me how you got saved. Show me, show me how your life is changing. And he goes, and I will show you by my changed life that I am a follower of Christ. And I truly believe that that's a very good statement. It is technically possible for somebody to be changed and not have works. They're never going to be able to prove that they're changed. If their life has not changed and they're not working on a new life thought process, there is no way they're going to prove it. And here's Paul saying, we need to have the life that changes. And this is very important. I truly believe that when you're saved, at least one big thing changes in your life. Now, hopefully it's more than one, and it may be something simple. I now enjoy going to the church. It used to be that I did it just because it was a good work. I now enjoy reading my Bible. I now enjoy being kind to people. Whatever, you know, God has taken away my temper. He's taken away my alcohol and my drugs. Whatever it is, there usually is one big change in somebody's life that can say, Here is that big thing. I am a new creation in Christ, and here is what changed. And then lots of changes after that. Now, you know, one of the things I used to be very jealous of is these people that whole life changed overnight. You know, they became a Christian, and everything about them changed because I wasn't one of them. God took my temper away, but it's taken him years to get many of the other things out of my life. But, you know, one of the things I've learned about those people who have major changes in their life they're very impatient people with people like me. Well, I just don't understand how your life didn't change. All my whole life changed overnight. Why didn't yours? There must be something wrong with you. I'm super Christian because God changed me completely, and I just don't know what's wrong with you. you know, and they become very prideful in their changed life. You know, so I'm kind of glad with my level of pride that I struggle with that God did not change me drastically overnight because I'd have been in trouble (laughs) because I would have been one of those that was impatient with all those who didn't grow grow quickly But there should be steady growth Just as we would look at a child who doesn't grow when we take them to the doctor and say there's something wrong with my child They're not growing now we have so many Christians in this in this world that at least say they're Christians they're 50 years old in Christ, still sucking on a bottle and not walking and not crawling. You know, and nobody worries about them. You know, it's like, what is wrong? <laughs> Why aren't you growing? And as I tell people, Peter said that we're, we're supposed to be moving from milk to solid food. The problem with so many Christians are they don't even want milk. They want it watered down. Don't even give me milk. Milk hurts my tummy. Give me Give me just watered down. Give me as little as possible, so I can, I can grow just a tiny bit. But don't give me enough to really be accountable for. And they're still crawling around, laying in a, laying and pooping their diapers, and not getting up in the spiritual world and doing anything. And they're almost just one step out of being stillborn. You know, they're alive, but it's like, alive for what? We need to be challenged to get beyond milk, to get to solid food, to be able to say, God, I want to be your child. I want to serve you. So here's Paul going on and saying, all right, so verse 21. For this cause, for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having there from, obtained help from God, I continued unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets of Moses and Moses did did say should come that christ should suffer and that he should first be the first that should rise from the dead and the people show light unto the people and to the gentiles so he goes i've i've just been teaching these words that god told me to teach and then god rescued me that's kind of interesting you know it is god rescued him obviously but who rescued him actually the centurion all right we do need to realize that God uses people around us, oftentimes, to rescue us. All right, Paul's recognizing this centurion came from God because he was going to be torn apart. He was, they were headed to the, the stoning pit where somebody was going to vote for Paul to be executed. And he says, and I got rescued, and since then I have been teaching, and all I've been doing is teaching what Moses says, Agrippa, that the Messiah is coming, and by the way, Isaiah told us he was going to suffer and all you know He's going down through all this list and I don't know that we heard every single word that you know is recorded here That was recorded before them He might have gone through the through the prophets to go show. This is what this is what was taught This is laid out very quickly All right, verse 24 and as he thus spoke for himself Festus said with a loud voice Paul you are beside yourself with much your much learning to make you mad but he said to him, "I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knows these things before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa believes believe you the prophets? I know that you believe." Then Agrippa said to Paul, "Almost you persuade me to be a Christian." And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. All right. Probably one of the saddest statements ever in the Bible is right here. Agrippa says, almost, you persuade me. All right. Uh, Festus goes to him and says, "Uh, Paul, you've gone crazy. (laughs) You are out of your mind. You have studied too much. You're living in some fantasy world. You're not not living in the real world. And Paul goes, no, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking the truth. And then he stops talking to Festus and turns right back to King Agrippa. Agrippa, don't you believe the prophets? He's challenging Agrippa. Festus has already ignored him. He's talked with Festus already. He talked with Felix all the time. He's now focusing on Agrippa and saying, Agrippa, don't you believe the scriptures? Now, there's no recognition on whether Agrippa really believed the scriptures or not. You know, Paul says, I know that you do. So there must have been some truth that he understood. And Agrippa says, almost, you persuade me. You know, literally, to a small degree, you persuade me. Not enough to make the change, but he goes, You've got me on the path. I, am, I'm, I, I almost, <laughs> you know, I, I almost, but I'm not ready to commit. And Paul's answer is kind of interesting. I wish that you and everybody else were almost and completely, <laughs> to a large degree, persuaded, commi- con- convinced, convinced. And he goes, I wish you were all like me, except for these chains. He goes, I want you to all be like me, going to heaven. Now, you don't, I don't wish these chains on you, <laughs> but I wish that you were all like me, that you were all headed to, to heaven, you were all following after God. This should be our heart for those around us. I wish that they would all come to Christ. I wish that everybody in my family would come to Christ, and seek God strongly now I have many people in my family that have said a prayer and may or may not be saved because you look at them and you're going you can't prove it to me you know I don't see any works fit to repentance you cannot prove to me yes you said a prayer but there's no way that I can know for sure and that you can prove to me that you, that you are saved because there's no works. And I worry about them. I can't judge them. That's between them and God. I pray for them to get saved because it doesn't seem that they are. But I really have that same prayer. God, I want them to be like me. I want them to be hungry for God's word. When I first got saved, I got hungry for God's word. I listened to the children's children's show on the radio, they had a Bible study. I applied and started taking their correspondence Bible study. Within three years I had gone through everything that they had available. They introduced me to Moody Bible Institute. At age 15 I was studying at Moody Bible Institute on correspondence courses, and if you know Moody Bible Institute is one of the big Christian colleges. So that when I finally went to Bible school, I had already taken a lot of courses through Moody Bible Institute. I got hungry for the Word of God. I wanted to know God's Word and be able to witness. Most of it because I got really embarrassed because I told people they needed to know Jesus. And when they asked how, I don't, I don't know. Come to, come with me to Sunday school. They'll tell you how to do it. Now, I'm 10 years old. I, didn't know what, I barely knew what I had done. All I knew is my life was different. You know, uh, and here's Paul saying, "I wish everybody was like me. I wish everybody was. You know, you think I'm crazy. I wish everybody was crazy. Then. <laughs> you know, and you know this is very true. To the world, we as Christians are crazy. We believe there's a God, who created everything, who gives us peace, and who's in control of our life. They think we're crazy." Because somehow they think they're in control of their life as they're locked into their sin. Because what do they, they always say? And what do we probably say before? I can stop this anytime I want. Now, I am not an alcoholic. I, I can stop drinking anytime I want. I just don't want to. I'm not addicted to these drugs. I can stop anytime I want to. I just don't want to. I'm not addicted to a work. I, I just doing what needs to be done for my family and that's best for my family. I could stop doing it anytime. any time. And we are locked into our sin nature and we are enslaved by our sin nature and we don't even recognize it. I will rather be a slave to God and have the peace that passes understanding and the joy that he gives me than to be locked and slave to the sin that brings destruction. So if I'm crazy for being a follower of Christ, thank God. If I'm a nut for following Christ, praise God. If I'm a fanatic because I'm following God, I'm happy to be a fanatic. I used to be a fanatic for football, especially one particular team. I was a fanatic for that team. And, you know, had no problem cheering and yelling and and knowing all the stats about that team. You know, and all of us have something that we're a fanatic about. Now we may not like to be a fanatic of some of the things that we are a fanatic for, but sin has us bound up as a prisoner. I will gladly be the slave of Christ and be bound to Him with all that He gives me than to be bound up by all that the world has to give me. Because the world's cost is too great. It is too great a price to pay. And we understand that as a Christian. The world does not see that the cost that they're paying is that great. They think that that temporary joy that they get in their sin is all that there is in life. And until they experience the real life in Christ with the joy and contentment that he brings, they don't understand that there's so much more that they're missing out on. And they think we're crazy. Well, it's just temporary. It'll all fall away. No, I have God filling my life, and that's all I need. And then the last two verses, the last three verses. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked be- between themselves, saying, This man does nothing worthy of death or bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, so the judge gets up, his wife gets up, Festus gets up, all the other people sitting in in the judgment seats get up, and they start talking and conferring amongst themselves. And they go, uh, You know, basically, why did Festus do this? He wanted wanted, uh, King Agrippa to help him write the charges. And Agrippa's going, there's no charges here. You know, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we'd have just released him. But he's appealed to Caesar, now he must appear to Caesar. Their hands are bound. He's appeared to Caesar, we have to send him to the Supreme Court to present his case. And we have no, we have no charges to be able to write down on the document to send to Caesar. To send, this man is put before you because of these charges. Because they say there's no charges worthy of being bound up. Now, some of the Jews might have come in and tried their whole, came all over again and accused them of violating Jewish customs. Not going to work with Caesar. Caesar's not going to give a darn that he's violated any Jewish religious rules. Uh, and yet, because he is a Christian, when he finally appears before Caesar, the Caesar he appears before is Nero. And Nero, when he appears before Nero, is killing, having Christians killed. So now Paul's gonna come and tell him that he's a Christian and he's gonna get executed for being a Christian. And if he'd been able to go before any, Augustus at this time is who's reigning. If he had gone before Augustus, he would have been released because there were no charges. But because he gets to Rome and he gets put under house arrest and never gets to go before Caesar until he appears before Nero he's going to end up being executed, beheaded, because of the change of Caesar's and the rules that he's now going to go before Caesar with. But he does get to preach before Caesar. He does give the Gospel to Nero. Now Nero doesn't listen to him and has him executed, but he does make it before Nero and he will be beheaded, which was the execution style for a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen would never be crucified and would never, never be beat. They would be beheaded because that they were a Roman citizen. So that was the just punishment for them. It was quick, fast, and that would be what he would face. And so this is what's going to happen to Paul. History tells us that he is beheaded by Nero. But here the leaders that he stands before say, hey, if he hadn't appeared before, appealed to Caesar, we would have just said, you know, you're free. Who knows how much longer he could have preached if he had been freed. Paul's whole goal, though, has been to preach in Rome to Caesar. I don't know why did God put it on his heart. We don't know. Yeah. Is it just because of he's a type A personality and say, I got to go preach to the top? Top, It very well could be it could be i'm determined i've got to get i've got to get to caesar so he did everything he could to get to caesar and again why did he originally appeal before caesar because festus was going to send him to in front of the jewish kangaroo court to be condemned and he knew that he would be condemned he knew that he would not win that case because they were already against him he he sat on that case he knew he knew that they would that they were willing to pay witnesses they were willing to they he knew that they had already determined that he was guilty you do not ever want to appear before a court that has already determined your guilt all right the judge has already determined that you're guilty you're in trouble because they won't listen to the law they won't abide obey any of the laws and paul knew that if he went before the the high priest he would have been found guilty and then the execution would have been under their laws and to a degree, Rome would have been bound, especially when Festus took him to that court to be tried. So here is Paul's testimony. And Agrippa says, almost I am persuaded. The saddest thing I have heard over the years when I witnessed to somebody, I'm just not quite ready. I just don't quite want to do this. And. Yeah, I'm not you you haven't really I don't believe everything or whatever whatever their excuse is. And it's like, I sure hope this is not your last time to hear the gospel message. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's their last time that they can hear that message and they reject. And I can almost see God's heart being broken because he knows it's their last time. You know, watched one of these movies where God where where the guy playing Jesus says, the hardest thing about being God and knowing the future is knowing that they're going to reject even though you've given them every opportunity to accept. Now, we don't know that they're going to reject. You know, we're not in that same place. Our job is just to present the gospel, hold it out. We don't even know it's their last opportunity because nobody is given any definite date of life you know, or death. <laughs> Uh, And it's so funny people go especially when they're young well when I'm old I'll accept Jesus. Well, how do you know you're going to live to be Oh, well, you know? Now of course when you're young old is 30 you know 30 or 40, you know, but uh, or even 25 (laughs) If you're young enough, but you know how many young people die every day Now nobody expects to die Everybody who died has a point, you know, then you're celebrating their funeral have appointments that had to be canceled, had expectations that had to be canceled, had plans that had to be canceled. My sister had a friend die. And they were at the swimming pool, and her friend died going to her car to get her medicine. And my sister got mad because her friend never came back. She thought her friend had abandoned her and then found out that her friend had died trying to go back and get her inhaler for her asthma, that she didn't even know her friend had asthma. You know, this is the kind of thing that happens. People do not know when they're going to die. And they were both young at the time. And we need to be able to really encourage people to say, you don't know how much time you have. And we're not trying to be morbid when we're telling people that. Chances are they're going to live a long life. Most people do. But nobody's guaranteed a long life. There are a lot of people who die at a young age. And we need to make this decision that we're going to share the gospel with everybody. Just as Paul did, he says, God told me to share it with everybody. And share it. Tell people your testimony. Let people know what God has done for you. Because that really is your strongest testimony, you know, your strongest way you can witness I was a sinner. I was headed this way. God got hold of me and he changed my life. He has made me a new person. I love looking at the lives around people in this church that have changed. You know, and the drastic changes many people have had in their lives. And just look and say, "Wow, God, you have you have got these people." And it is wonderful to see these changes and say I love it. I love to see these changes. I love to see how God is changing people. I'm not even sure most of them even know how much they've changed over time. But you look at it and say, wow, this person is totally different today than they were when I first met them. And there are people in this church that I have known for eight years because I've been here well nine years in December, so eight, eight and a half years. And there are some people that I know that are drastically changed the sad thing are, there's a handful of people in this church that have hardly changed at all. What is the common element? The ones that have changed come to church. <laughs> the ones that don't haven't changed. You see them once or twice a year, maybe three or four times a year. I mean, I know who they are, and but they have not changed that much. They're not seeking God actively. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying they're not actively seeking God, and there's little to no change in their life. They're still on milk, they're still on milk or they're on the watered-down milk if they're even saved. And that's not my job to judge them. They say they're saved. I have to accept that they're saved. You know, but when you don't see changed lives over a long period of time, you start to wonder, are they really saved? There are certain people in this church, I have no doubt that you're saved. <laughs> All right? Because I've looked at the changed lives. I've looked at the hunger for God and all that's going on. We just need to share that with others. Be, be Paul. Be courageous. Be bold. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Help us to be ready to share you with others and to guide and lead. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow Him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at chloridebaptistchurch, PO Box 65, chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.